Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Giselle Donnelly, and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my colleagues, Yulia Joja with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University, and Alibur Haas from AI. On this podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that have emerged along a line that runs from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why these matter to the United States. Today, it's just going to be the three of us talking about the events of the last couple of weeks. It's been incredibly uh, hectic, obviously, um, on the Ukrainian front, if I may use that term. Uh, so we're going to talk about the highlights, or at least a highlight, and some of the lowlights from this period. Many, many lowlights. Many, many lowlights. <laughs> if you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks and welcome. And I'm going to start with what is the most obvious and still a shining highlight uh, of events in Ukraine. Uh, they are, first of all, the performance of President Zelensky, uh, who is definitely a profile in courage uh, and setting an exemplar that I sort of wish uh, his uh, Western counterparts would uh, not simply praise, but emulate. Um, <laughs> even the New York Times got around to writing the obligatory. He used to be a comedian and an actor, and now he's a great man oh. story. Um, so uh, it, the mainstream culture has uh, finally recognized that there is a profile in courage and in this postmodern era um, that sometimes men matter or women or individuals matter more than events or great currents of history um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, again, uh, praising from the safe distance of Manhattan is one thing, but going forth to, to really help the Ukrainians is, uh, is quite another, which we will sort of talk about momentarily. And then the second highlight is, is also the performance of the Ukrainian military. Um, uh, again, defying all the predictions of experts, um, and of course, who can say whether uh, Russian weight of firepower and metal will um, so reduce uh, Kiev as it is laying waste to Mariupol uh, and has really devastated Kharkiv uh, will tell in the end. But again, this is uh, there are many lessons for military experts to learn from this uh, about the relative advantages of uh, material versus uh, um, morale, uh, but also technical lessons um, uh, about the ineptitude of autocratic militaries and the weaknesses of leadership that they display. Uh, but again, this is uh, one of the things that should give us all uh, some hope uh, that there's a brighter future, uh, even though it will be preceded by many very dark nights. So with that uh, sort of lugubrious <laughs> highlights, uh, I, I turn it over to my colleagues to comment or to get straight to the uh, 
uh, bathos that uh, that we intend. <laughs> now, hold on. I want to go back just for a second before we will, um, Dalibor and I will dive deep into the n- numerous lowlights. Um, but I was, um, yesterday someone was telling me again and again, I heard it so many times, that um, they were so surprised with Russia's low performance militarily. And what I asked back, and I want to ask you back, Giselle, because you can give us a a bit more of an accurate understanding of this, is um, why are we so surprised? I mean, in as long as we can remember, even if we've been on this planet for a longer time, um, they've never fought against someone that um, showed... Uh, some decent capabilities and resistance. Just think about examples like little tiny Georgia, um, where they underperformed. This was just a few years ago. They underperformed. Everybody evaluated it as such. Then they started doing this military reform that completely fell apart. So we never really saw them fighting a, a decent war. Why are we so surprised? Well, uh, Julia, it sounds like you're reading my own words back to me uh, a couple of weeks ago. So let me uh, extend my arm and pat myself on the back. But what you say is absolutely true. Um, uh, And, you know, again, this enters the, the realm of pure speculation in trying to understand the relationship between uh Putin and his uh, closet of lieutenants, and particularly his military advisors. But um, you're quite right. Uh, Russia has appeared to be uh, sort of like a pufferfish, much larger uh, uh, in appearance than it is in fact. And you're also correct that uh, uh, even a reasonable analysis of not just events in Georgia, uh, but uh, in some ways, even in, in Syria or in Crimea and in the Donbass, um, reveal uh, what heretofore was a extreme caution about committing, about over committing and biting off more than they could chew and consolidating gains um, rather than uh, overstretch. Um, so... You know, maybe this is a situation where either Putin had and the the generals had so uh, consumed their own bathwater that they really thought that they were a first class military, or that the Ukrainians were so weak and disorganized that uh, that they could conduct a thunder run to Kiev or something like that. But you would think the Russians would have learned from how. Um, uh, difficult has been on the on the uh, line of contact in eastern Ukraine over the last eight years that uh, the Ukrainians of today were not the Ukrainians of of 2014. So this is going to be something that that scholars puzzle over for years to come, uh, probably without a whole lot of you know factual data, unless somehow there are archives that we can get to, or, or you know. Uh, Putin himself winds up uh, uh, spilling the beans uh, on trial or something like that. Or, you know, one of the things that that might happen is that one of these 
higher ups will defect. Um, and I can well imagine that we're trying to tempt uh, uh, some of these guys to um, take the wiser course, as it were. But um, it's a puzzle. It's and it's not one that's evaporated. It's not like they're learning the lessons that have been apparent over the last several weeks. They continue to commit forces in penny packets. I mean, my gosh, this is you couldn't imagine something that's more different than. Uh, you know, Marshal Zhukov and the Red Army of the Second World, late <laughs> Second World War. Uh, so uh, it's a puzzle, but it's um, it's a pattern at this point. I mean, you can't you can't well, deny we can, it. We can always sort of wildly speculate on on what's happening, and there've been some interesting there've been, there've been some interesting discussions in my uh, you know Russian military Twitter feed over the past couple of days. One had to do with yeah. information flows. And and the sort of you know sort of information properties of a decaying autocratic system in which everybody is afraid to mm. share the bad news with their bosses, right. and that way only good pieces of information travel all the way to to, to Putin, and then he makes decisions accordingly. And you, you know, you... the eternal dilemma of dictators, right? right? And uh, and the other the uh, and there are obviously other sort of aspects to this. The sort of decay that has to do with corruption and 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 you see that you know the maintenance of the trucks and the machinery and and sort of the the shambolic nature of these logistical supply lines clearly people faced only very weak incentives to sort of be competent and do their best within the russian military at least that's that's the sort of impression i i get uh but but also there is there's this sort of interesting and and hard to sort of uh analyze formally question of uh, uh, sort of soft factors like sort of cohesion and motivation and clearly this operation has not been sold to rank and file troops as something that has to be done and that's in the interest of mother russia right they were sort of sent to fight in a place they don't know where they are they don't know why they are there they uh, seemingly keep getting captured uh and 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 so 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 the sort of incentive structure in and on, on 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 like it looks very different for the ukrainians than it does for the russians and and it's fascinating to see yeah. this play such a big role like in real time um well and and these two things sort of multiply one another sort of you know morale writ large is a is a uh intersection or a, a combination of um you know, sort of patriotic enthusiasm plus, uh, you know, tactical competence. It's, you know, if, if you have to go looting the grocery stores in order to feed yourself or ask the Ukrainians for uh, petrol, um, that that could be kind of a bummer, right? Your, your morale. I just imagine these, you know, poor suckers who've been living in their tanks or armored personnel carriers for now three weeks, uh, in the midst of winter, you know, so or, or rain and mud, as the case may be. Alternatively, um, the the you know this is uh, this is what makes soldiering very yeah. unpleasant. <laughs> so if you're if you're not provided for, if your leadership is uh, weak, 
Uh, well, that's the other thing. So, yeah. so you have on the one hand Putin sitting at the end of that long table, and on the other hand Zelensky besieged Kiev, walking, going walk to on, the hospital and, yeah, and shaking, shaking everybody's hands, yeah. and and just being a sort of you know human about about the whole affair. And yeah, that that must play a role. Too. Well, yeah, and the you know just to get to one of the lowlights. Um, my my uh, best noir Rod Dreher had a column the other day, whinging about uh, the fact that the administration had brought in TikTok influencers uh, to pass out their Ukrainian conflict. Talk about I, I think that's great. You know, uh, Zelensky and you know uh, the Biden administration even are winning. The battle for hearts and minds, particularly in the the social media sphere. Uh, I mean, talk about a lack of understanding of warfare under current conditions, and that's been a. All these things have have, you know, Ukraine has won the information war, uh, at least you know for the foreseeable future. Um, well, the question is, is, is it going to be enough? Like, you know, is, is, is not the heavy lifting still taking place in the mud of... Oh, Ukraine? absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Um, it, it, it seems to me that we don't understand here in the West, I'll just say here for, for <laughs> the time being, um, the, the combination of what both of you were trying to say and what the Ukrainians are excelling at. And that is, I don't even know how to, how to frame it. I guess um, the, how to combine values with aims and then implement them. Um, it seems that here we have a big problems in terms of misunderstanding um, and we keep not learning from these mistakes. Um, and, and before I, I get into my rant, about are you that, West explaining? <laughs> <laughs> I am East explaining. Okay, okay. Maybe we should. Maybe we should. You're um, the explainer, so carry on. All right. So, um, so let's yeah, let's frame it in terms of West explaining and underestimating and denying agency. This is how. I, I think we should frame it. That is so postmodern. Um, I mean, uh, I feel old. Well, <laughs> I tend to be a, in, in my teaching capacity, I tend to be a constructivist or a post-structuralist. And so I'm amazed um, at, uh, at how we are learning here in the West about the East. We continue to be surprised and we continue to um, uh, to explain how they should be reacting. And I see that um, with my students being taught that. I teach at Georgetown um, graduate level, at George Washington Elliott School undergrad level, European studies and European security. And I see in some of my students' papers, the same problems that the pundits are making all the time. So I can't blame my students for that. But um, we uh, tend all the time, and we've done so, so much in the last week um, through this horrible conflict, we tend to all the time tell the Ukrainians what they should want and what they they should not want and what they should not need. Um, but, but on what they should want. No, um, no makes for you. 
I'll get to that in terms of needs, rather. The, the, but, the fighter but it, Nazis say, no, no, no mix for you. Yeah, because you don't really need them, right? Um, but, but in terms of what they should want, um, we we continue to tell them, even after 2014, we continue now to tell them that they should be neutral. So let's check. There's about 40 million Ukrainians, and they don't want to be neutral. And we don't need to explain why. Four, it's very obvious. 14 or 4040. Uh, <laughs> before, um, before the commencement of hostilities. Yeah. <laughs> Forever, really. Uh -huh. I mean, we, we tell them... Um, that they should want neutrality. Um, so Russia can tell them that. The United States cannot tell them that. Germany cannot tell them that. We're not in Yalta anymore. And this is, they are manifesting every single day and doing the ultimate sacrifice for, for, for something that we misunderstand in terms of a regional conflict when it's all about values. They got attacked, they got invaded because they wanted to be more Western, because they embrace Western values. And we tell them by saying neutrality, we tell them, no, you should not want that. Um, these, um, these values are not yours to be had. Um, we told them this week that in the formula, or last week, um, in the formula of um, the European Union, who debated in Versailles for about five hours whether Ukraine should get candidate status to the European Union, which means years and years of possible accession, and which would have an, a, an only symbolic value. And yet, there were at least two countries, you know who you are, who said no. That's not possible. We cannot do the symbolic gesture. Why? Because they are at war. They Because they are at war for wanting to join the European Union. This is just mind-boggling. And then the Ukrainians are asking, so beyond our freedom and independence, this is about value. And so what exactly are we fighting for? You keep telling us you don't want us um, because of, of some countries that... It, it just doesn't fit with them. Um, so that's one thing about Ukraine. Um, I'm and chalking that up as a low light. <laughs> <laughs> as, a, as a low light, yes. Um, and then in terms of their, their needs, yes, the mix. Um, so the United States is telling Ukraine you don't really need those. You don't understand what you need. At the same time, um, we don't talk about um, air defense systems. Um, and, and we basically tell them we don't even know, at least on a public level, you, we don't even know how much backlogs you have in terms of ammunition, but we're running kind of low and we need to start producing. And so the question then back to us is, what exactly or do we actually have a winning strategy? Do we want Ukrainians to win and then... For that, what are we actually doing except patting ourselves on the back and denying them even symbolic gestures? Um, it's uh, 
it's really shocking. Oh, maybe one last thing to to say in terms of getting our act together. Um, and, and this is a good segue, you know, to what Dalibor wants to talk about uh, is is the issue of um, let's not start World War Three. So here's um, strategy lesson number one. When you're faced with the threat of mass destruction, as lovely Putin tends to remind us every other day, then you don't rule anything out, right? Because you cannot. You don't put red lines and you don't rule anything out because what can happen then is that in the Indo-Pacific or on NATO territory, the logic will be if a nuclear power drops a tactical nuclear bomb, even on NATO territory, then we don't want to start World War III. Oops. All right, Dalibor, over to you. <laughs> no, there, there has already been a lot, of, lot, lot, lot to chew on. So, so I just want to make one brief comment on this question of agency, which cuts in interesting ways, both in the case of Ukraine and in the case of Russia. Uh, our colleague Holbrand had a interesting piece in the Bloomberg over the weekend on, you know, the Mearsheimer question and how, you know, we made Russians do this by expanding NATO. Too expansionist yeah. about NATO and 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 and, and like he it is well worth reading and we should include the link in the in the show notes. Um but but the, the sort of interesting feature in this context is is, is really how much that Mirschheimer story denies agency to the Russians themselves. Like it's always the West that's making decisions. It's always the Americans. Uh, never mind the little, you know, Eastern Europeans, which were actually the driving force of all this. Like they, they are irrelevant, right? It's, it's sort of Washington making decisions and then Russians, like they have no choice but then to like escalate and be aggrieved and, 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 and be nasty to their neighbors. It's... Um, it's really an extraordinary display of sort of, you know, 21st century Orientalism of, of, of sorts. Um, but back to um, to my low light, which sort of segues well with, with, with what Julia just said, um, namely this question of Western response and the absence of a strategy. I think Timothy Garth and Ash said it well on one of our earliest podcasts that there has always been clarity about Putin's strategy and and just uncertainty about his tactics. In the case of the West, it's, it's the opposite. Like we sort of know what the tactic is. Like we sort of limited our choices to economic sanctions, basically, and military aid. Uh, but nobody knows what the end game is for us. Nobody knows what we are trying to achieve here with Ukraine. Like, exactly. like sort of, like. You know, like if, if they fight the Russians to a stalemate, are we going to then like strong arm them into accepting some version of Minsk three or surrendering parts of the country? Or are we trying to That's like saying neutrality, yes. right? That's like saying taking completely Changing agency away and saying like a... you need to do what we tell you to it's do. It's one of those moments where you actually need sort of Western leadership. You know, somebody like the president of the United States standing up. And yeah, give, giving giving a speech saying, you know, like here is our vision for for Eastern Europe uh, that Eastern Europeans can get 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 on board with, and and that there is nothing of that. There is this yes, this sort of cheap self congratulation, the you know Ukrainian lapel pins, uh, and 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 that's it. And and yeah, yeah, sort of like to preface all these conversations by saying 
clearly what we are never ever going to do no boots on the ground no americans in the harm's way like it well that actually sort of like in a way like begs the question because we don't know where this is going to go like russians have agency too they can escalate they can escalate to a point where we would have to revisit these these decisions that had been made by 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 the administration already in december and he's sort of clutching you know like like these old men do i guess to 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 these standards and and it like to to me it just strikes me as as completely unreasonable way of approaching this like you want to just keep throwing russians off of 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 balance you have to demonstrate to them that we are actually a global superpower and they are not like we sort of see how overstretched the military is like like you don't sort of preemptively capitulate when you still have loads and loads of options that you go can go through and and we can sort of talk about the specifics and i'm not saying we should do the no fly zone or anything like that but it's just we have sort of tied our hands behind our back preemptively for no good reason. It's, 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 it's... And, and we're even questioning whether we should be arming Ukrainians to the teeth. I mean, that's not a question, is it? Unless they have, we want to give them somewhat of a winning chance, there's no question. We can talk about boots and no-fly zone and all of that on our side, but in terms of aiding them... No, no it's, it's complete. The, the, the whole, well, we don't necessarily want you to win... But we want you to suffer as much as possible and to exact as much suffering on the Russians on our behalf is you can't imagine, you know, sort of a more immoral, uh, you know, sort of uh, amoral approach to statecraft than that, which is which is so self-defeating for us because our whole position, our whole leader is a global coalition is is centered on these values and if we so obviously broadcast that 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 it means very little there's nothing you know no risk that we will run uh, but we're happy to have others run our risks for us it's, it's just crazy and so i wonder like you know how like where, where this goes if because like right right now it's it's Putin who sets the terms of engagement in a way like he says okay now I'm going to bring in the Chechens and now I'm going to bring in the Syrians right. and now like and if you like do anything like you, you know you already are engaged in hostile acts against the Russian Federation like through you know economic sanctions like these are acts yeah, of was war, a war declaration right yeah. and and we sort of like are sort of hiding in the corner. And he's and, and now I'm bringing the and he's bringing the Syrians and he's asking for aid from 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 China and 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 so he's getting a sort of free pass on all these things like we can we can respond too and and then the question is like what what happens once you know once he does use a tactical nuke or, against or, Ukraine or or or, or, or you know uh, one of his planes goes a little too far and bombs over the border into Poland or Romania. Let me quote, not one inch. <laughs> uh, I, that's the problem. I don't think that um, I don't think that we trust that. Not one inch, but 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 kilometers and kilometers. So, sure. so small note on the MIGs, and then we should go into into um, not one inch red lines, and, red lines. <laughs> and nuclear and chemical. Yeah, and nuclear and chemical. But um, but on the MIGs. 
I, I haven't really seen this in the media. Isn't it obvious, apropos West planning and giving agency to the Eastern Europeans, that the Poles didn't want to do this unilaterally because they very much yeah. doubt not one inch. Yeah. And so they want everybody to be on board. And now we're telling them, oh, no, we just want right. to throw you under the yeah, bus. That's, that's alliance management of a very high order. <laughs> Well, but let's let's before we completely exhaust our our welcome. Let, let's talk about what might be coming, and especially this uh, the question of escalation in deadlines and what we will do. Because you're quite right, Julia. I mean, Putin keeps uh, you know becoming more and more provocative, and, and until there's a, a you know, first of all we have committed acts of war against Russia. I mean, there's just no way around it. Um, that doesn't, you know, absolve us from being prudential in our strategies and so on and so forth. But if you don't at least admit that you are at war, then you'll always be chasing, you know, the dog chasing the car and Putin could put the brakes on and we could catch the car without uh, uh, intending to. Um, so, so what would be, I asked both of you, what, what do you think would really be a red line for the administration, for the Alliance, for the West? West Plain to us, please. Uh, I want to hear Dalibor on this. I'll just say one thing. So President Biden said if chemical attack, uh, then Putin is going to pay a very high price. And based on what he said so far, that to me means economic price. More super duper sanctions. Yeah. Um, well, I guess like some sort of embargo with secondary sanctions, sort of Iran style. And and yes, I mean, that would be meaningful, but like that could have been done and should have been done arguably on the 26th of February already. Uh, and, and it just reminded me, there's one last topic that we should talk about after we wrap up with this, and that's the Chinese uh, yeah. response of the last couple of days, but, but Dalibor, what can you imagine would be a, a red line, you, you know, chemical? Well, so, so it's an interesting sort of dichotomy that they present us with, uh, the administration. So the president says, you know, like not one inch of NATO territory will like, would we allow Putin to Everything claim else you or, can or attack? Have. But yet, like, you know, like one inch away, like it can be complete, like scorched earth and, and you know, yeah. chemical weapons and, and, you know, nukes, what have you, like, can reduce Ukraine to rubble, kill everybody for all we care and unleash 15 million refugees onto, on, onto the EU. That's fine. But, like, if you touch Poland and Lithuania, uh, is World War Three, and and that's just um I think that sort of raises the question of how credible that is, like like if if and and obviously Poles and Lithuanians have very good reasons to to worry that if if push comes to shove, you know people will try to weasel their way out of the situation, especially if unlike in the current case, Putin is clever about what he does later in the Baltics or 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 or, or Poland, like if if it's not you know this this kind of sort of brutish brutish takeover but if it's something with plausible deniability and little green men you know lang russian language rights or 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 what have you uh and 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 so so so, so i don't think you can sort of like I don't think that sort of discontinuity is tenable, if only because the outcome of what happens in Ukraine does have direct bearing on the position in which Putin will be in 
in you know in his efforts to intimidate and threaten the rest of Eastern Europe. Like if suddenly NATO's border with Russia or Russian controlled territories is much longer, like it becomes much more difficult to defend. We have to commit more resources, we have to send more troops. So so to say, oh, we are just indifferent, basically, to what, what happens in Ukraine, like it's it, it doesn't square with the commitment to the defense of of, 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 of the eastern flank. So no red lines, I guess. Well, so that to try to, to make a uh, uh, Pacific pivot, um, I wonder whether the that uh, transmission of signals of weakness uh, is at all influencing China's willingness to at least uh, stand with Russia, offer economic, uh, and now the Russians have asked for for military aid, and again brought one of those. Uh, not one inch responses out of uh, the administration. I mean, if I were China, ooh, Taiwan is an island, not neighboring NATO countries. Um, let's even if we picture that, they must be drawing very valuable lessons right now. Um, I can rocket and bomb it to rubble without consequence because it's you know it's not nato well at, at the same time i mean the other lesson obviously goes back to what we discussed at the beginning of this podcast namely uh, the determination with which you know free people will fight autocratic would-be occupants and yeah okay but suppose that in the end the russians crush the ukrainian resistance and even if there's a uh uh, you know, underground counterinsurgency uh, effort that that makes governing Ukraine uh, misery for the Russians. In in just one note on that, we sort of define that as the outcome that we expected on Ukraine, and I wonder yeah. how that is in any possible definition a win for the West as a lesson to to other places too. Like that's our bet that we're gonna. Um, Ukraine as a country destroyed and counterinsurgency or insurgency into uh, into something that is half occupied or de facto occupied by Russia, that's our win. And so what what is our win then in Taiwan? Well, so I guess the hope that people are having is that this will be so bloody and so costly for Russia that it will make Putin's regime unsustainable eventually. eventually, and it will sort of force some kind of change. Uh, but that's like again, like that's not the strategy. That's just like a wish. Like I don't know. Like maybe this will bring Putin down, and I hope it does. But but it's it's just silly to sort of assume that that will be certainly the case. That this is again like 1905 or you know the 1979 invasion of of Afghanistan or. Or whatnot that it, that the dynamics will be exactly the same. Maybe this will be, you know, maybe this is the turn of Russia towards totalitarianism that will be sustained for the next sixty years. Like, who the hell knows? So for Taiwan, this would mean if China would make today a move on Taiwan, we would impose sanctions. Oh, really? Super duper. Uh, you know, uh, we'd stop importing Chinese. Oh no, we can't do that. Uh... No, we actually can't do that, right? Like, if, if like if it's if it's if it's too hard to you yeah. know like for Europeans to cut themselves off Russian natural gas right now. Don't take away the my idea of of like sort of severing supply chains from China. It's it's just not going to happen. 
especially for, for younger Americans, they could they can live without cars. Just judging from my own, own children, but they can't live without large screen displays. Gaming would be impossible. Would be brought to our knees. I, I think we've hit a nadir, or at least a temporary. If there is such a thing as a temporary nadir. Uh, maybe we should name these uh, roundups low lights and more low lights. Uh, <laughs> do you guys have any any uh, uh, misery to add before we before we wrap up? No, just a wish to get finally at some point in the near future our act together. That's it. From your lips to God's ears. What about you, Dalibor? I have just one small thing. So, so I noticed, um, again, like I'm probably spending too much time on social media these days. Uh, I saw some Russian stooge um, tweet this picture, this sort of banner saying, Russian lives matter, as a sort of response to the supposedly rampant uh, Russophobia in the Western world. And obviously there are some sort of valid practical concerns, you know, like people who flee uh, Putin's regime and are unable to use their credit cards abroad or people inside of Russia who now, because of the SWIFT restrictions, can't, uh, you know, get VPN to get to Western websites and, and, and Western media, etc. But But this sort of idea that what we should be talking about now is, you know, the wave of Russophobia and, and, and how, you know, Tchaikovsky cancellation at the Cleveland Symphony Orchestra should be at the sort of center of our attention. Like like to me, that that just proves, regardless of the merits of these individual questions, it just proves how like unserious the the debate in the West is on this whole subject. Like how we can't really keep our focus on Ukraine and the Ukrainians for more than two weeks. And, And it's sort of suddenly like reverting back to the old you know, identity politics Culture and the sort of tropes yeah. that like people have in there, like, you know, they, they have already written their op-eds, they have them in the drawers and, and they're just sort filling of filling in the blanks. Yeah. Yeah. And and so so that's that's depressing and, and I don't think it bodes well. I'm for... sure Russian Lives Matter will be the title of Rod Dreher's next uh, column. So uh, uh, there's that to look forward to. From me, Giselle Donnelly and and Yulia Zoja and Dalibor Rohaj. Thank everyone for listening to the Eastern Front. Our podcast is dedicated to the security challenges that have arisen along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website at aei.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, uh, In touch with us via Twitter uh, using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod, that's all one word, uh, on Twitter. If you enjoyed this episode and this conversation, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye until next time.